You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. power and strength in women is the role this that maternal child and health and nutrition... is what drives this disease and, t- and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Hello, and welcome to the Take is Directed podcast. I'm Janet Fleischman, Senior Associate with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. In today's episode, we're delighted to be joined by Gita Rao Gupta, a leading voice and champion for women and girls, gender, and health. She is currently a senior fellow at the United Nations Foundation and executive director of the 3D Program for Women and Girls. Gita was deputy executive director of UNICEF from 2011 to 2016, and for over a decade, she was the president of the International Center for Research on Women, ICRW. I've been fortunate to have known and worked with Gita for many years and have seen firsthand what a vital role she has played in using research to elevate advocacy and action to address the needs of women and girls around the world. We're here today to discuss two major developments with which she's been involved, the new Lancet series on gender and health and the Women Deliver Conference in Vancouver. So welcome, Gita. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So why don't we begin a little bit with your story? Tell us how you got involved to become a champion of women and girls. So I grew up in India. That's where I was born and lived and completed all of my education right up to my doctorate. Um, And as you know, India has very stark inequalities between women and men. And I became aware of them as a teenager and as I was you know, going to college and seeing the world around me and the life of other women, because I grew up in a very progressive family, so was quite sheltered from that reality for quite a while. Um, and so over time, that became my passion. The fact that those inequalities exist when they didn't in my family, I found quite appalling. Uh, and then began to experience some of them myself as I entered the world of work and higher education. And um, so took that on really um, because of an anger in my belly. You know, it, it was, I was passionate about it because I felt it personally. And um, it's not easy growing up in New Delhi, uh, using public transportation, the, the harassment and assault on a daily basis was something I experienced and um, didn't think it was fair, didn't think it was just. And so that became my cause. And when did you come to this country? I came pretty late in life, not like most Indians. So I came um, at the age of 29 because my husband's job brought us to the U.S. Uh, I was already uh, teaching uh, women's stu- the first women's studies program in India, um, in Bombay, at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences. Um, it was just an incredible opportunity. Um, And so I had a job there, but we thought this was a two-year assignment for my husband. So our baby was little and we came over thinking, you know, I I took a sabbatical thinking I'd go right back to the job, but then he kept getting extended. 
And I started looking for something to do on women and development because that's what women's studies is in India, is really about women and poverty. And the International Center for Research on Women was the only place at that time. And it happened to be in D.C. and we were living in Virginia. So that's where I landed initially as a uh, unpaid voluntary research assistant. Then as a, when they sponsored me for a visa to work as a, as a paid research assistant and then as a project director and onward. And it's so interesting because you have continued this path and expanded the dimensions of what we talk about when we talk about women and girls and development and gender and health. And uh, that leads us to the new issue of The Lancet, of which you were one of the primary authors, that deals with gender and health. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this series? I mean, it's it's a fascinating set of new insights about how gender norms and inequalities impact health and how action and accountability in the global health community can help transform these restrictive gender norms and gender inequalities. Tell us what what were the key new findings of this series? So before I do that, Janet, if I could just add that one of the, um, the lessons I learned early in life is that activism and shouting and screaming passionately about some issue doesn't always work. That you need to back that up, that it's necessary, but not sufficient. And that you need to have the evidence and the research to back it up, which is why I became a researcher. And so this Lancet issue is trying to do precisely that. It's trying to put in one place all the evidence and arguments and the conceptual understanding of how gender inequality and restrictive gender norms uh, impact health, have a significant um, impact on health. So the um, this particular series lays that out and shows how rigid societal norms around femininity and masculinity and um, gender-based inequalities, uh, which historically have in disadvantaged women the most, um, affect every aspect of life, but particularly health. That's what this series was about. And I would say that some of it wasn't new, but it's so clearly laid out that I think it, it, it will be a useful resource for advocates as they're trying to make the case. Um, I think that the other point that it makes very clearly is that transgressing gender norms or portraying hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine traits both lead to worse health outcomes. And I think that that's an important point. The other point that it makes is that it affects the health and well-being of all women and men and um, children and gender minorities. And I think often when we focus on the disadvantage that women face, it's very important to point out that this, that disadvantage not only disadvantages women, but also men and families and communities and therefore nations. So it makes that case very clear. Um, in terms of what's new, I think um, it once and for all, I hope, uh, puts to rest uh, some persistent stubborn myths that have uh, held us back in the field of global health. Um, myths such as gender norms are entrenched and cannot be changed or gender norms are elusive and cannot be measured. Therefore, how do you know if you've changed them? Um, those myths now, through the analysis and the research that this series sort of pulls together, um, has been shown have been shown to not be true, 
And I'm hoping that they, this, it will help to dispel those myths once and for all. Let's go back for a minute and talk about some of the key health challenges that you think are underscored by these gender inequalities. In the paper, you talk about issues like high maternal mortality, HIV in adolescent girls in sub-Saharan Africa, traffic deaths and injuries in young men. Can you go through some of the ways that these gender norms and inequalities actually impact key health challenges? So let's take um, two of those just as examples. So maternal mortality, um, it's been one of those indicators that we've not been able to shift. We didn't meet the target in the MDGs. We made some progress, but not sufficient progress. MDGs being the Millennium, the Millennium Development, Development Goals. Goals. Right. And now we have the Sustainable Development Goals, and we need to see faster progress on that uh, particular target. And we know that gender inequality has an enormous impact on women's access, for example, to health services. The fact that women um, do not have decision-making power, um, nor the access to income that they need in order to be able to access services, that they have time constraints, that they have dual duties you know, at home as well as work. Uh, all of those gender-related factors affect their use of health services. So just providing better quality care, that's a very important piece but it's not sufficient. You have to be able to look at what are the gender-related elements that hold women back from accessing that high-quality care. So that's just one example. Uh, similarly, with um, the high, you know, a continued high rate of both um, new infections as well as deaths among adolescent girls in Southern Africa, um, the, the power imbalance between girls and boys and women and men clearly plays out in that situation. So adolescent girls are not able to uh, negotiate protection with their partners. They're often more likely to enter into risky relationships, um, despite being educated about the risk and all that information out there, because it's, a, it's sort of an avenue to status sometimes. It's uh, a way to get extra money, sometimes to pay for tuition. So there's a whole bunch of gender-related considerations that um, make them more vulnerable um, to getting HIV. And that's the kind of thing that we need to understand better. It's even true for the non-communicable diseases. So if you look at lung disease um, and you look at the way in which um, men and norms of masculinity promote that to be an adventurous, um, sophisticated male or female increasingly now, you have to smoke. You know, all of the ways in which um, the, the tobacco industry has promoted certain images of the strong masculine man, whether it's the tobacco industry or the alcohol industry. Um, those norms of masculinity that are promoted by advertising, marketing campaigns uh, have huge health consequences for men. Um, and, and they sort of they put in place norms of masculinity that are damaging and don't help men or families. So it works for both women and men. You also talk in the paper about some of the persistent barriers to progress, mm -hmm. um, some of the current backlash that we're seeing now. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? So the, the, it's a very politically challenging time, as you well know, Janet. Um, there is an enormous backlash to, um, to progressive values, to human rights, and um, women are at the center of that backlash. So women's rights are being eroded uh, in in you know um, 
in international forums and in conferences, as well as in national policies and laws, um, the rights of gender minorities are being eroded as well. Um, so it's true that there is that backlash, but there's also a resistance to it now. So in a way, the stronger the backlash, the stronger the resistance. And we see the Me Too movement, obviously, is is a key example of that. But there's several equivalent movements that are rising uh, in the in the southern hemisphere as well, um, and um, are putting bringing into sharp focus uh, the inequalities and the damage that those inequalities cause, um, and how those are an indictment. Of, um, of humanity in a way, of our morality, our, our combined morality. And so I think that um, it is an opportunity to try and now drive home the message that uh, human rights are fundamental and essential and that we have as a global community signed on to them and, and need to protect them. Um, and I'm hoping that that will um, help some of the messages in this Lancet series move forward. There are other institutional barriers. That's sort of the political environment within which we are um, trying to bring about change. But there are, um, you know, the health system, for example, uh, perpetuates gender inequalities and restrictive gender norms. It it uh, reinforces them. And there's a paper in the series that describes how that happens. And it's not just in the way in which the workforce is structured and uh, constructed within health systems where um, all of the care duties um, are at the lower rung of the ladder where and are usually occupied in the majority by women. And the cure duties, which are highly valued and paid more, are, um, are occupied by men and run at the upper rungs of the ladder. Um, so it's that construction as well as the way in which the system treats women and treats men um, that then perpetuates those gender norms or treats gender minorities with the stigma that is then present in society is then replicated through the system. Um, so that's there, there's that kind of institutional barrier, but there's also um, the way in which global and international and national governments, I agencies and governments have not succeeded in doing the one thing that we call for in Beijing, which is mainstreaming gender into policies and programs. And gender mainstreaming was sort of the approach that was uh, advocated for then as the way in which uh, we can get better outcomes. But what's happened along the way is that we've gotten so trapped in the process of mainstreaming gender. So we need gender focal points, we need budgets, we need people, we need you know guidelines. We, um, that we have stopped measuring whether doing any of that is actually making a dent in the health problems that we seek to, you know, to make progress on. So, um, so in this, you know, that is to me an institutional approach that we need to examine and see, should we be doing things differently? Should we have a more outcome-based focus rather than, uh, not that process is not important, but that just measuring process indicators is not getting us where we need to be is the point we're trying to make. So there's that. There's also the political environment that um, restricts uh, the the space for civil society actors and organizations to thrive and to speak up, um, which, as you know, is, is constricting as we speak in every country around the world. Um, and so we call for, 
you know, what do we do about that? There's, as I said, the marketing and media messages and how they make profit out of um, sort of um, reinforcing restrictive gender norms, not recognizing, you know, we don't recognize as health advocates the extent to which how powerful those media messages are. And we haven't used them to, to our end to make them more gender equitable. So how do we get the corporate sector to work with us, to give us their talent in leveraging these marketing tools uh, to change the restrictive gender norms? So those are some of the issues we talk about. One of the issues that the Lancet paper addresses is the difference between sex versus gender. Can you explain to us how the paper describes those differences? That, that's a very important contribution of the Lancet uh, because of the audience of the Lancet, which is often people in the medical profession. I was quite staggered to learn that in medical schools or in public health schools, and in a lot of the training that they go through and the accreditation that they need to become medical professionals or health professionals, they do not learn the difference between sex and gender. And uh, I have since checked with doctors who have asked me, what is the difference? And the word gender has gotten, there are many different ways of using it these days. And, um, and so it's gotten, if anything, more confusing. So sex is the biological characteristics with which you're born that determine whether you're male or female, right? Whether it's the genitalia, the hormones, the, um, the different sort of body parts that you have. The um, gender in the way we define it in this series and understand it is a sociocultural construction. So it's what society then interprets that biological uh, makeup to be, um, how it should play out, what should be the roles and responsibilities of those who are biologically male and what should be the roles, responsibilities, and obligations of those who are biologically female. So that sociocultural construction is imposed, whereas what you're born with in terms of your hormones is your sex. The other is gender. That's how we see it. And therefore, um, we believe that there is a gender system in society that um, assigns differential power and prestige to females versus males, to poorer people versus richer people. So it's many different, you know, there's an intersection of many different characteristics um, of, of status in society that get played out through a system that operates and gets um, communicated through various institutions that you interact with, through the way you're socialized as a child, through parenting, etc. So that's the the sort of the clarity that we have brought to the issue through the series, which I hope will be useful. So what are the next steps? How do you move this forward and, and how do you get these findings to a broader audience? Um, so we're hopeful that this is just one piece of what will be a larger movement that we're hoping the Lancet series, but also just all of the actors that are currently resisting um, will use this information to take um, these, some of these messages forward. Um, but really, I think that what we're calling for is reforming the workplace and the, and the work um, force of health, health institutions, um, thinking more about outcomes rather than process, um, filling gaps in data. I didn't talk about data much, but there are huge gaps in data and we don't have the right measures for measuring gender norms. Um, what the series very creatively showed is that you could use proxy measures, even using quantitative data to see what the impact is of norms on health. 
Um, how can we do more of that? How do we eliminate bias in research? There's a gender bias in research, in, in what research is conducted, but also the way in which we ask questions in questionnaire, who we ask those questions of. Um, so how do we eliminate that? And, and a very strong call to fund civil society actors and organizations and social movements, because they are really um, without money, uh, withering <laughs> um, and and closing their doors in many countries. And and the, there was a big announcement made at the Women Deliver conference on um, by the Canadian government of an equality fund, which is a, a step in the right direction, um, because we really want to see how we can get money to these groups quickly and how they can have a political space to speak. And finally, what do we do to strengthen accountability mechanism? Because what's missing is the accountability. We have lots of monitoring mechanisms. We have mechanisms where, like the Independent Accountability Panel for the Every Woman, Every Child initiative that the UN has, um, actually monitors what is happening in the world with regard to indicators related to gender, but it has no teeth. There is no way to hold anybody truly accountable. There is no mechanism for, um, what's the word I'm looking for? for um, for punishment or for reward, for um, remedy, for re yeah, for any remedial action um, or re rectifying what's the way in which it's happening, none of that exists. Even the most recent Global Health 5050, which is a very creative and useful mechanism because it looks not just at um, health organizations uh, in the in multilateral sort of world and in the in government, but also looks at private sector and civil society and so on. Um, I think that's a really useful mechanism, but it also doesn't have the ability to um, really change things. Uh, it shames people publicly, but it doesn't necessarily hold people accountable to change. And so we, those are the five main recommendations um, that we make in the series and, um, and actually make the case that even though this is a politically challenging time, there are some uh, conditions currently available to us that make it a time to act, uh, that now may be the perfect time to act. And the one which is, um, is this grassroots you know, movement, movements that have been maximizing the use of social media and therefore scaling up much faster than any other kind of grassroots movements in the past. Uh, that's a huge opportunity. The pressure on governments to meet the sustainable development goals in which they're very behind is another big opportunity. Um, a third is that we have new champions. We have men who are pushing for changes in masculinity, recognize the impact that the rigid norms of masculinity have and extreme forms of masculinity have on health as well as on women that uh, we can now bring into the fold and, um, and hopefully sort of mag magnify our impact. So we end the series on a hopeful note, uh, but do, uh, you know, but call out for action now. I mean, the message is the time to act is now. You had mentioned the Women Deliver Conference just last week in Vancouver, and you were there. You launched the Lancet series there. Can you tell us a little bit about what Women Deliver showed you about the state of the movement today, and what were some of the key themes and takeaways of the conference? So um, it's an overwhelming conference, let me say first, because from the last count I heard there were 7,000 people there. 
uh, in beautiful Vancouver. So I loved being there and participating in it. Um, but as someone who's been in the field a long time, I think what was the m- moment of, uh, of joy for me was to see how many young people were there. And by young, I don't mean just below 30, but I mean below 20. And that was really exciting to see because um, they're the ones with the energy. They're the ones who are demanding action. Uh, what was visible in both in interactions in the hallways as well as in their presentations is they're very impatient. They want change and they want it now. And they are holding governments accountable. There was a young um, um, Zambian youth activist who spoke in the plenary on the first day who brought the crowd to its feet as well as the precedents on stage to their feet in a standing ovation because she was so compelling in her call for paying attention and listening to young people. So I think that that was a big takeaway from uh, from the um, from the conference. The other thing that was intriguing to me was this questioning of what I have said for many years as my biggest call for action, which is we need to empower girls and women. And what we heard in this conference was we are empowered. We just don't get given the space to speak or that when we speak, we don't get heard. So the conversation seemed to shift a little bit to what are the platforms we need? What is the space we need? What are the convenings we need in order to be able to speak? And certainly Women Deliver is one such platform. So that was interesting too. And the data piece was another piece that came up repeatedly that, um, that you know, data does a disservice to women in particular, that we don't have the measures for women's participation in society that we need. Um, that civil um, uh, and registration and vital statistics systems at the country level are so broken that even basic identity um, data, you know, of birth registration, marriage registration, those kinds of things are not happening the way they should. And if that is the foundation for all data through which we do analysis, then um, you have a broken system overall. So that came out very clearly too. One of the big pieces that got international attention was the funding issue. Certainly, Prime Minister Trudeau's announcement. um, Ambassador Burks also made an announcement about the amount of U.S. funding. Can you speak a little bit about what that represented in terms of the conference, both in terms of next steps for governments, potentially, and as well as what it said about U.S. engagement? Um, I think those those you know announcements were obviously very um, energizing for the crowd because it's good when there's more money. I'm always a little, um, how should I say, pessimistic about those those announcements because you never know whether that's new money or whether that's money being counted differently, um, and it's actually just old money. Um, but but I have some hope that you know the fact that they are making these announcements at these conferences means that they are stepping up and feel the need to increase their investment. I'd like to see that investment come from national governments too. I think the world has changed a lot. Uh, I'm trying to less and less use the words developing and developed. Um, So I see less of a role for the developed nations to give money to the developing nations. You know, I really do think that national governments all over the world need to step up and there are problems of inequality and the impact of restrictive gender norms everywhere. And so how can we address these problems more globally? But this is not to undermine the calls for more funding or to you know, praise the governments who give more money to these causes uh, or the private donors, because I think we desperately need more money. And there is money in the world. 
it's just being used for all the wrong things. Are there other pieces about Women Deliver that you thought were worth relaying to an audience that wasn't able to be there? Um, I would just say that the, you know, the energy, you come away from that feeling it's possible. You do feel that change is possible. And I've been more than three decades in this, in this part of the, you know, in this business. And I can tell you that uh, it's difficult to keep the optimism alive. So even though these conferences seem like, oh, what gets achieved with 7,000 people coming together, I can tell you what it does do is instill a spirit of optimism and hope. And without that, none of us can work. So I think that um, from that perspective, I would like to see women deliver thrive. <laughs> I would like them to uh, continue. I also love the fact that they look at all aspects of women's lives. So they don't just look at reproductive health or just at women and the economy, but they look at how all of these issues intersect because that's the work that I'm doing through the 3D program on girls and women is looking at those intersections and how can policies and programs recognize better that you can't just attend to one aspect of women's lives without attending to the others because investments in one give you a return in the other. So um, uh, even the Lancet series actually calls for multi-sectoral action, that policies that improve education or policies that improve um, uh, parental leave create you know, gender equality, but also improved health. And the health sector has always uh, despite the Commission for the Social Determinants of Health that uh, you know was made its, uh, its sort of recommendations, I don't know when, 2005 or uh, which year that was, but several several years, decades ago, um, we are still at, in a situation where the health sector doesn't know how to work with the other ministries and other departments, and and that's part of what we are trying to demonstrate and show through the 3D program is how at local government level we can make departments that work on different issues, but at least plan together, share data, monitor progress together for girls and women while using the specialization that is so needed for them to be able to implement what they're best at doing. So what's your message to those who um, are going to read, hopefully, the Lancet series, who weren't able to be at Women Deliver, but who are energized by the challenges um, as well as the opportunities of this moment for the women's movement and for broader issues of gender equality? I would say use what's in the Lancet, use the data, use the evidence, um, use the explanations that are in there um, to advance the cause, uh, to organize and mobilize, because that's what we need. We need collective action. Without collective action, we're not going to get anywhere. The people in power are not going to give up their power. And this is fundamentally about a shifting of power, of the power balance in society. Thank you, Gita. Thank As you always, so such much, a pleasure Janet. to thank hear you. your thoughts. And thank you for joining us for the Take Is Directed podcast. As always, we invite you to subscribe to Take Is Directed so that you never miss our latest episode. For more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, please visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page.